0: Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting.
1: Welcome to Murder and Mimosa, a true crime podcast brought to you by a mother and daughter duo, bringing you murder stories
0: with a mimosas in hand.
1: Just a quick disclaimer before we get started: our show is Murder and Mimosa. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances murder, and sexual assault. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information that some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Danica and I'm Shannon. Today we are going to tell you the story of Brittany Lynn. So grab your mimosas, you sip while we share. Darren and Jennifer were awakened Sunday morning by sounds they thought were coming from the bathroom. Their three-year-old daughter, Brittany, had already been in their room that morning and they told her to go back to bed or go watch cartoons. So when they heard the noise, Jennifer assumed Brittany was just in the bathroom, in her makeup again. She told Darren to go check on her. He went to check it out, but Brittany wasn't in the bathroom. In fact, he couldn't find her anywhere. So the two began searching the house with the help of their two roommates and the outside area. When they were unable to find her, they called the police. police came, and they found Brittany, unresponsive, in the closet of one of the roommate's bedrooms. They rushed her to the hospital But Brittany was pronounced dead on arrival. I
0: have so many questions right now. Was she murdered? Was this an
1: accident? How did she get in the roommate's closet? Don't worry. We will get to all of that. So Brittany was a beautiful little girl. She had long brown hair and these puppy dog brown eyes. And she was energetic, your typical little girl. She was the only child of Darren and Jennifer. Darren and Jennifer had a four-bedroom about 1,700-square-foot house in California, and they had rented one room to Steve Lopez, and he was a friend of Darren's from high school. And, in fact, the two had actually been roommates before Darren and Jennifer even got married. Steve worked at Thrifty's Drugstore and had an employee there, 24-year-old Chuck Johnson, who also needed a place to stay. So Chuck and his wife had recently Mm -hmm. separated Mm -hmm. again, So, Darren and Jennifer rented him a room at their house. Chuck also started working part-time doing construction work for Darren. Had they known more about Chuck, they may not have let him move in. But at the same time, I'm sure they really probably never expected any of this. What should they have known about Chuck? Well, like I said, he was separated from his wife and not for the first time. But let's back up even further. So, Chuck's parents divorced when he was a baby and his mom remarried. His stepfather, who was abusive to his mother, although Chuck says he was supportive of him, um, he had stolen a BB gun from Kmart when he was 15. He was arrested and his dad came and got him, but there weren't really any consequences for it. Chuck had trouble in school and was in special education classes and dropped out while he was in high school. While most teens you know, experimented and tried drugs and alcohol, he didn't really begin on a regular basis with any of that until he was 19, and then he says he drank daily. He ended up running into a former classmate in February of 1992, and they went and got high together on speed, and he became addicted to that from then on out. In fact, when Brittany died, he'd been up for two days straight, Chuck started dating 17-year-old Angela when he was 22. I don't think you would call this like a fairy tale relationship by any means. Angela got preg- pregnant pretty quick, and while pregnant with their first son on November 16th, 1992, they got into an argument and he knocked her down and beat her profusely. She gave birth 2 days later with a black eye and a split lip. Not to mention, as a mother, that's one of your most exciting days, and to look back at those photos and see that you or your son seeing those are his baby photos, that just breaks my heart. Of course, like most battered women, she didn't file charges against him. She stayed and made excuses for him. December of 1992, she calls her parents and tells them to come get her because Chuck's abusing her and she is fearful for their baby. So her mother heads over, and Angela is still on the phone talking to her father, while Chuck, however, is in the other bedroom now with their three-week-old son. So Michelle, Angela's mother, walks into the bedroom and tells him to give her the baby because he is flipping out again. When he refuses, she walked out, and she said she's going to call the police. He had his son holding the baby under his arm like a football and walks to the wall mounted phone. He yanks the receiver out of Michelle's hand and says, this will fix that. He begins swinging the telephone around in the air and it strikes Michelle in the head. She ends up needing stitches and she presses charges. So how were they able to call anyone if he pulled the phone from the wall? Well, Chuck and Angela lived in an apartment and Michelle walked out saw a security guard that she yelled to to call the police. Sadly, Chuck only served five days in jail for this. Angela doesn't leave him. They're going to try and work things out. And on January 16th, 1993, he beats her again. And this time she moves in with her parents, at least for a brief time anyway. She goes to confront him on February 19th, 1993, about money taken out of her account, and he starts to choke her. For the first time, she files a police report and he is arrested. Yet, something we see a lot with battered women, he promises he won't do it again. And the day before he's supposed to go to court, she drops the charges. But on the same day that she drops the charges for him, he wants to use her car while she's at work. And she says no. Well, like the man shot he is, he gets irate and tries to throw the car in park. Wait, was Angela dropping at this point? Yes. She tries to like block him with her arm and he bites her. He tries to throw it in park again. And this time he is successful. The car is spinning out of control and she runs off the road. She goes to a payphone and calls her mom and he gets his stuff out of the car and he leaves. She says she filed a police report, yet sadly, she still wanted to work things out with him. Many other instances happened throughout their crazy relationship. And she ends up pregnant with their second son who was born just 11 months after their first. Of course, it's an endless series of beatings, empty promises from him and her taking him back over and over. Usually we wouldn't add all the issues with domestic violence but it is domestic violence awareness month and we don't want you to be a statistic. Shannon, I know you did training to volunteer for a domestic violence hotline. Do you remember how many times women go back to their abusers? Generally, they will go back and forth
0: about seven times before they actually leave for good. Now, that's definitely not the number of times that they're beaten, but that's how many times they just go back and forth. They usually go through a honeymoon stage, too, after being beaten um, by the man. Well, it's generally a man. It can be a woman, Um, but... At that time, they're just so sweet. They promise on the moon they're going to do anything for them. This will never happen again. And some women live for that little bit of honeymoon face. If you've gone to that training, though, they have these clothes ons with shirts hanging up with each victim's name, which really puts it in perspective of how many got at the hands of their abuser.
1: Plus, it's an endless cycle. It's not going to they're not gonna wake up one day and stop what they're doing just like chuck said his mother was abused so they came to think like that's what marriage looks like and a lot of times that cycle continues a thrilling murder mystery subscription box game killer mystery transforms game night into an immersive captivating and mysterious adventure puzzles cyphers online clues and more make this game can't miss for mystery fans Read the story cards, work the clues, and remember, everyone's a suspect. Season one, The 80s Were Killer, is out now. Get yours today at www.killermystery.com
0: In the city of Cielo con Angelitos, dreams are made or broken in an instant. For one family, the dream turned into a nightmare overnight. The question everyone wants answered is, who killed Kate and Lewis Hansen?
1: So let's go back to the story with Brittany that Sunday morning. Chuck has several different stories, but says he heard Brittany get up around 7 or 7 30 because he could hear Darren yelling at her to knock before she came in. So Chuck gets up and gets some water and gets Brittany some juice. He says she wears nightgowns without. Panties, and that's a big pet peeve of his. So he goes and gets some shorts out of her dresser and tells her to put them on. And then he turns on cartoons for her. Chuck says he went to fix his car and Brittany was in and out. He then went in and locked the front door and went back to bed about 8 30 that morning. When he hears the phone ring, no one was on it, but he and Darren both answered and he asked if he knew where Brittany was. He tells Darren she was just in the front room watching cartoons. So he goes and gets on clothes and goes to help them look for her. And that is all of Chuck's account of what happened that morning. So Jennifer's in the kitchen freaking out because they can't find Brittany. Which, of course, is very understandable. Right. So she gives them a picture and tells him to take it around the neighborhood and ask if anyone has seen Brittany. He doesn't go for very long and then the police arrive and they search the house which like I said it's like 1700 square feet it's not tiny but it's also not huge and they find her in the closet with clothes a toolbox is on her and there's a black garbage bag over her head Chuck told the police when he went back to bed he locked the bedroom door so they're asking how on earth she got in there and he said he doesn't have the foggiest idea no I you mean, no clue He later admits to seeing her body in the closet while searching and he freaked out and covered her up, but he had nothing to do with this and still has no idea how she got into his room. They also find her baby blanket under his bed and it has blood on it. They ask him about that. And again, no idea how it got there. So the police obviously don't buy his story and he's arrested. He never admits to killing her. And at trial, he, of course, doesn't take the stand.
0: Yeah, because you're going to look like an idiot saying, I found this kid dead in my closet.
1: I have no idea how on earth she got there with the door locked. Right. And the jury doesn't buy any of his story either. So he's sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Well, in 1997, he appeals the decision. Goes nowhere. In 2009, though, he's up for parole, and he's no longer denying that he killed Brittany. So what happened or what does he say happened? So according to him, Chuck says he's going to his bedroom to do a line of speed. And when he went in there, she attempted to follow him in. And he just lashed out and tried to push her head out the door and shut the door. Instead, he caught her head between the door and the door frame, And she started to cry and cry out for her mom. He says he panicked not wanting to wake up her parents and tell them he covers her mouth and gets this says she fell
0: asleep. What asleep. So he's not even wanting to come out and say, I straight up murdered this little girl because she got on my nerves.
1: No, of course not. He doesn't want to take the blame. So he says he hears Darren and Jennifer getting up, which is what he was trying to avoid when he covered her mouth. He says through, through in the closet. Cause he just didn't have time to think about it. He says he honestly had no idea she was dead at the time, and the parole board asked what his plan was, and he said, we didn't have one.
0: I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. You don't want her parents to know her head was hitting the door, so you put her to sleep, as he says, and just leave her there?
1: Yeah, they asked, like, did she have a pulse when he laid her down? He said, I don't know. I didn't check. I'm just trying to get her, you know, out of sight. So he
0: literally was walking around helping these parents look for their child and knew exactly where she was. He sure did. If he does supposedly wake up from the closet, or if she does, I mean, what's his plan then? Oh, look,
1: she must have been asleep in my closet. Also, how'd you get those bruises on your face? Well, this guy's a lot of things, but clearly Smart is not one of them. So what's the official cause of death? It says homicidal smothering. From reading it, it stated that smothering was evidence of possible strangulation. She had a contusion above her upper lip. She had a laceration on her upper lip and evidence of an airway obstruction and then also some scalp contusions.
0: What's so creepy or what would stay with me as a parent is that they were hearing her or probably hearing her that morning actually being killed.
1: Yeah, they've actually come out and said that before. Like, can't believe that it happened in their house where you think you're safe, right under your own nose. And I'm sure it's something hard to forgive yourself for, but they had no idea this guy was a whack job. Something else that got to me in the 2009 parole hearing, he was asked what caused him to kill her. He said she was following him around and he was stressed and she was just getting on his nerves. He was stressed because he hadn't slept in two days. He was stressed because he was separated from his wife. He said he was just irritated because he wanted to sleep, didn't want to have to babysit her, which no one asked him to do anything for her. And he brought all of the stress on himself. So how hard is it to wake up her parents and say, hey, your kid's up, or just go
0: to your room and stay there?
1: He even said, though, he paid rent there. He felt like a guest, and he thought he was being nice by letting them sleep in.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they're really grateful for his help. Does he think before he speaks at all?
1: I honestly don't think he does, or he was trying to sound like he's really thoughtful while, you know, being questioned about a murder he committed. He ends up being denied parole in 2009. He has another parole hearing in 2016 where his parole is again turned down. However, November of this year, which is just a few short days away, he has another upcoming parole hearing. There is a petition you can sign that would be presented at the parole hearing and hopes to keep him in prison, and we will have it linked in our show notes and it will also be on all of our social medias. Also, since we talked about it being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, if you or someone you know is dealing with domestic abuse, please don't wait until it's too late. You can call 1-800-799-7233 and there is someone there 24-7 to talk to you. And there are shelters in most areas that they can refer you to. We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers. If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us. So please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.